and welcome to the Anarchist Book Club with Danny Evans and me, Jim Yeoman. In this episode, we are joined by Max Farah to discuss his forthcoming biography, Arthur France MBE, The Life and Times of an African-Caribbean British Man, which explores the life of a key figure in black radical cultural movements in the UK, perhaps best known for his work in founding the Leeds Carnival. I will note that this episode does contain some strong language, so if you'd rather not hear that, I advise you to proceed with caution. We hope you enjoy the episode. Max, uh, thanks for being on the uh, on the podcast with us. Just to start things off, could you provide a, a bit of an introduction to Arthur France and why uh, his life story is worth telling, as you do in your forthcoming book? Yeah, so Arthur France is born in Nevis, which is one of the smallest Caribbean islands. It's adjacent to St. Kitts, has a population, even when Arthur was born, of about 10,000 and is now about 9,000 people. So it's absolutely tiny. Um, he's born in 1935. He comes to England in 1955. Um, so he's, you know, he's... He's, he's had an apprenticeship. He's had an education on Nevis. He's done an apprenticeship with a, um, a wheelwright, actually, but basically it's kind of as a, as a carpenter. He's then worked in a, um, in a, steel, in a steel mill in uh, the adjacent island of St. Kitts. His father is um, a very religious man, but, um, you know, quite, quite well quite well set up, um, works for one of the colonial plantation owners as a, as a chauffeur and as a sort of general manager. So Arthur is, you know, he's not a privileged person. He's a black person in a white island, but um, he does get an education. He does get an apprenticeship. He gets some working experience, comes to England and immediately gets a job um, because, as you know, black and Asian, well, a bit later on, Asian people are being sucked into the UK to do the jobs that uh, need doing in the post-war reconstruction, and in some cases, white workers are refusing to do. Um, so Arthur, you know, quickly, quickly gets employment. But the thing that makes him interesting uh, over and above that is that he comes with... Uh, some political ideas which he's acquired from his uncle who has been a founder of the trade union movement in St. Kitts and Nevis. They're, federate, they're federated islands. So, um, you know, if you live on Nevis, you're very attached to St. Kitts and there's a St. Kitts and Nevis trade union, which becomes a political party, um, I think in about 1940 or so, um, and is a radical party which is already uh, supporting the strikes. There's a major strike in in St. Kitts and Nevis, particularly St. Kitts, because that's where most of the sugar is still being cropped um, in 1937, 1938, along with a whole range of um, uh, anti-colonial strikes that are going on in other Caribbean islands at the same time. So Arthur has been very close to his uncle joseph who's a who's a mover in the strike movement and then in the first um labor party of of st kitts and nevis so arthur arrives already with some political ideas and the the 
the big story of his life and his big impact on the UK, particularly the city of Leeds, where he, he arrives because he's got relatives already in Leeds, is the way in which he contributed then to the growth of black power, uh, to all kinds of other. And and, and he's, he's particularly well known for founding the first carnival, Caribbean-style carnival, founded by black people, run by black people, largely populated by black people. So, you know, he's a very important figure in the emerging radical black cultural movements in Britain. Just to take a step back, what was Nevis like as a place for um, the young Arthur to grow up in the in the 30s and 40s? Then was it still primarily a plantation economy? How do people make a living? I I do really recommend that you all take a holiday in Nevis. Um, you might have to land in St Kitts. And there's about 30,000 people on St Kitts. You've got a little um, bumpy ferry with about 20 other people across to Nevis. And you're in the smallest of it. I mean, there's hardly a village in Britain that's, that's you know, as small as, as Nevis is. It, it's, it's a tiny island which is basically a volcano. You could drive around it or walk around it or, or cycle around it in, in a pretty short time because you're just going around the edge with, with the calm sea on one side and the wild sea on the other side. You're going around the edge of a volcano, which was, because of its volcanic soil, the most profitable sugar plantation in the whole of the British uh, Empire. So uh, massively productive sugar-wise, imported uh, slaves doing all the ship work as you would expect. Um, I, I describe in the book, you know, some of the atrocities. I mean, it's an extraordinarily brutal regime, which um, has, you know, its mark is still stamped there because it's it's you hardly see a white person on Nevis unless they're a tourist. The most notorious of which is John Cleese. Actually, he's decided to live there. Um, but you don't see him. So, so you, you know, if you like me as a rich ish white tourist, you'll stay in a small hotel and there will be one or two other white people there, but it's basically an Island populated by people who now, well, so in Arthur's day, they were fleeing because the sugar industry was in decline. So, so we're going back now to uh, the 1950s by then the sugar industry is pretty well over and although arthur has a job because he's got an apprenticeship an awful lot of people are fleeing both st kitts and nevis for america sometimes for panama um, and for the uk because you know the the economy has been destroyed because of the end of of sugar the, the it's it's sugar is no longer commercially viable the Germans are actually producing more sugar by then out of sugar beets than the Caribbean islands are. So, you know, there's a massive labor flight in the post-war period. And as soon as Britain opens its doors and starts to suck, invite people in, a lot of uh, Catitians and Nivitians do come largely to Leeds. It, it's on its uppers economically uh, by the mid-50s. Now, I mean, I mentioned John Cleese because now there's an awful lot of tourist investment. And because it's because it's like an English village back in the 1950s, there's a certain kind of tourist, including me, actually, who loves it because there's, you know, there's nothing doing apart from your Kindle. 
you've 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 already you you know you've mentioned this being sucked over the Atlantic really to Leeds from this you know the, the picture that you paint there and it must be you know you'd imagine it'd be quite a you know a dramatic change in 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 all sorts of things in Arthur's life so can you give a sense of what his, his early experiences in Leeds were like yeah Arthur Arthur is a great raconteur so and he has a fantastic memory he's in his mid-80s now but he has a fantastic memory so he so he describes arriving in Leeds and here's an observation you make straight away they've got park benches all over the place why would anybody sit on a bench when this place is so cold and he's arriving in September and he's already thinking blimey this place is cold blimey this place is gray I interviewed many years ago I interviewed another guy and he said to me I can't, you know, I came to England because I knew my friend was lying to me. My friend said he's having a terrible time here. And he, and he said to me, these people have fires in their houses. I knew he was lying. How would anybody have a fire in their house? And he got here and found out why we had fires in our houses. But Arthur, Arthur came to his sister's house, which was already accommodating a couple of other Nivitians, you know, so he was made welcome, and he never speaks badly of 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 his accommodation. Um, partly because he's in his sister's house, and then he moves to the house of another Caribbean person, actually not a Nivitian, a Jamaican guy, who's who's opened up a sort of rooming house, and he doesn't speak badly of this because Arthur is an extremely kind of gregarious and good-hearted person. So, and and you know material difficulties don't really don't really trouble him but i've in the book i've used other sources especially actually a, an amazing thing as a historian it is amazing when you find in this case the history of roscoe methodist church put together by the parishioners of the church it's a self-published probably a you know 180 pages something like this self-published book which is a sort of it's like a chat book really it's got all these reminiscences in and one of the reminiscences is an, of an early student priest in 1953 going round, knocking on the doors of the Chapel Town houses where Nivitians and Catitians are already beginning to settle. And he, as a young white man, actually gives you a vivid description of what these houses are actually, these rooming houses are actually like. And the, the guy, the most striking thing is that the guy says that you know, he's not, this is a, a priest and, and he's a, obviously a man of goodwill and so on. He's not made welcome as he knocks on the door. People are very suspicious. What on earth is a white man knocking on my door? And when he eventually gets entry, he says the, the, the house is so full of cigarette smoke that he falls down the step. He gives a very clear picture of a very impoverished house. And in fact, you know, there's other books about Chapel Town in this period about the demolition of a lot of these houses. The rooming houses were often the cheapest houses and in the worst physical conditions. So, and a lot of them uh, in the early 70, uh, late 60s and early 70s got knocked down. So, and I lived in them. I lived in houses similar to this in that same period. And I, you know, I was a a tenant so i was able to rent you know reasonably nice places but i did know people and i did do community work which took me into some pretty shockingly bad accommodation 
I don't think Arthur was subjected to the worst accommodation, but th th there was there was lots of very poor accommodation made available to these black migrants. The ones who worked hard and kept in work, which most of them did because it is a time of full employment, lots of people then scraped the money together and bought houses in that neighborhood. So, you know, by the 80s, there's an awful lot of owner occupiers and and the conditions are, the conditions are getting better. Arthur actually lives in a, he, he got himself into a council house. I'm not quite sure when, I should have found out when, but I know when those houses were built and they, they, they were built in the early 70s. So he probably got himself a transfer uh, into, into quite reasonable, small, but reasonably well-built council housing in the early 70s. So Max, I want to ask you about how you first uh, came into contact with Arthur, but I was struck by the name of this church. So the Roscoe Church, is that any connection to the famous Liverpool William Roscoe, who's a Unitarian abolitionist, streets and pubs named after him here? Whoa, that's such a good uh, such a good question. I will I will have another look at the book. I haven't seen that. I haven't se I haven't read every single page of the book. I haven't seen that mentioned. But it is true that the method. One of the reasons I put the stats in this actually into the book. That, so one of the things for <laughs> one of the selling points of the book is it's not just Arthur's story. It tries to give you a picture of the socio economic and cultural conditions of Britain in Arthur's time. And it it does include uh, some quite a lot of reference to the, the 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 way, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I have come to realize that it was churches that provided an enormous amount of social solidarity for people and a kind of kind of spiritual resistance to racist oppression. You know, it provided a a resource for people to come together, black people to come together. And 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 the stats on Methodism in Nevis and St Kitts are that about twenty percent of the population. I mean, about seventy percent are Christians, and about twenty percent of them are Methodists, and about twenty percent are Church of England, and about I think about ten or fifteen percent are Catholic. But the reason why the Methodists are so strong, and it might be that this might be a a Roscoe Liverpool connection is that Wesley, as you know, was a very early opponent of slavery. So the Methodists were the ones who were associated with a political response to slavery, and and I mean they did, you know, they 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 did play their part in the in the abolition movement. So it might be that there is a connection. I'll, I'll try and find that out. Actually, there are one or two. I do know one or two of the original. Um, what are they called? I think they're called fathers or what the ministers are called. I think they call them father X, Y, Z. I will ask the one who, who, who put the book together if he actually knows that, if there is that connection. But it is, the, the basic point is that Methodists, more so the Church of England and Wilberforce and things are always thought of as the, as the, uh, as the Christians who oppose, but the Methodists were by far the most militant and the first to come out strongly against slavery. You enter the picture now, Max. So, can you tell us like how you first met Arthur and, and what you, what were your impressions of each other? So he scared the pants off me. Basically, I would have been so 1972. I'd have been 22, 23. I'd decided for my sins to put my eggs in the PhD basket, and I 
said to Leeds University Sociology Department, I want to study the Chapel Town Community Association. I won't depress you by telling you how simple it was to, well, you had to get a decent result, obviously, but basically if if a tutor kind of favoured you, you, you just got offered a PhD bursary. And um, I said, and, and he just said, do whatever you like. And so I said, I'm going to study the Chapel Town Community Association. He said, that sounds all right. And proceeded to ignore me for the next year during which time I joined what was the only organization I could see available because there wasn't, there's no social media, obviously. What we had, what I found straight away was something called Chapel Town News. And that had an advert for the Chapel Town Community Association. So I joined it and, you know, was agreeably surprised to find it was a multicultural Asian, Caribbean and and, and Brit, British, in, these this included poles you know new british citizens new white british citizens irish british citizens so it was a, you know it was a, a, a you know a, a great organization but it was very much seen by arthur and his people who were simultaneously in an organization that arthur had founded in 1964 called the united caribbean association but arthur's posse inside the UCA were early exponents of explicit black power. And if you, as I did, went to support and find out about the various activities they were doing, which included, I mean, there are some extraordinary uh, bits of Chapeltown history which are hardly known, which includes in 1974... Um, their group organizing the first and I think only strike of black school children in a in a local school and you know they said this is a rate the headmasters are racist the, the standard of education is too low there's no black history there are no black staff and we are not going to go on with this any longer they started off by they started off by writing to the council writing to the director of education holding meetings explaining their case you know they went about it in a in the normal kind of straight political process but when they realized they were getting nowhere they just said right we are going to take our kids out of this school and they took them out for three days and put them in a church hall actually and gave them their own curriculum they taught you know they had one or two educationalists among them and they ran an alternative school for three or four days and the council promptly caved in so people like me from the community association by this time i was writing for chapel town news you know i would i would go along and listen with my ears wide open and 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 full of enthusiasm and and admiration for this militant grassroots political action completely run by local black people largely the the, the people who'd migrated from St. Kitts and Nevis. But obviously you'd then see people like Arthur uh, getting up in meetings and talking the talk. You knew they walked the walk. And, you know, I was well impressed, but also very aware that people like me were not actually welcomed with open arms because and as some of the younger people who i would bump into sometimes socially or you know other kinds of events would tell me to my face that they're not having any more missionaries you know uh telling anybody what to do 
So, uh, you know, I was, I was, I could, I knew the politics of that and I knew exactly, and I felt deeply wounded and hurt as a young kind of anarcho-Marxist, you know, proto-revolutionary, et cetera. But, um, but I knew I hadn't got a leg to stand on. So I was extremely, I was awestruck and intimidated. I'm now very old. And, and the thing with people like Arthur is that they just are testing you and testing you and testing you. And if you eventually come through, you become his brother by another mother. You know, we are very good friends now. And, and he, you know, he wanted that he wanted me to write this. And I'm very flattered. He wanted me to write this biography because, you know, he knew I would, I would do a job that he would enjoy, but it took a long time. Having said that, I have a, black friend who is half my age who <laughs> reminds me that she came to me when she first arrived in Chapel Town and she said I want to hook up with Carnival and one of my friends says that you'll introduce me to Carnival and I said well I will and I introduced her to Arthur and this is a massively talented Trinidadian origin trained Carnival worker and I said to her but look be prepared it'll take seven years before you get accepted I just plucked seven years out of thin air and she said to me about 15 years later she said max you're right it took seven years before these bastards would would you know would accept me as as a genuine part of of the carnival movement and and she's black i mean <laughs> what it's like to be white in that situation <laughs> took me at least 10 years probably took me 15 years and i say this i mean i laugh about it but it's painful and and you know this is the this is the kind of learning process that you know I I benefited from. It's, it's fascinating hearing you you talk about those those early experiences with with you know with the various groups around Leeds. The UCA's kind of first action there does sound like it would kind of really inspire. The first action, and I put this in the book because I have an older mate who's also a Leeds University student. The first, one of the first actions was. <laughs> of the UCA was to go and occupy the public bar of a segregationist pub used by known fascists. This is on the edge of Chapeltown, but it's sufficiently it's sufficiently on the edge of Chapeltown to have a basically white clientele. And black people explain that they're made, you know, because there aren't that many pubs. It, Leeds is quite a prohibition kind of it's quite a temperance kind of city, actually, surprisingly so. And 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 this Chapeldown is a formerly middle class area, so temperance temperance was very strong when 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 it was being built in the eighteen seventies through to the nineteen sort of nineteen tens is when the bulk of it has been bought. So there are very few pubs, and and they they tend to be on the edge of of the neighbourhood called Chapeldown. And this particular pub had maintained a colour bar right through till the mid-60s. So the redoubtable Irish lady who runs one of the sort of uh, multicultural pressure groups sort of allied to what became the Community Relations Council and, and so on, she organises with the Jewish ex-servicemen's organisation, i.e. some hard-fighting Jewish multiculturalists she gets them involved and she gets a bunch of a bunch of softies from leeds university union anarchist and and, and socialist clubs um to come along and they basically and tom Steele is the guy and he's a 
famous writer now, actually, a great guy. He says to me, he and his and the Ajax guys walked, and a few other white people walked, and a few of their of the UCA members walked into the pub and demanded a drink. And because they were there in numbers, they the black guys were refused to drink, so the white people then went and got a drink, and and the tension rose this is 1964 the tension then rises because there are fighting racists in the public bar the tension rises and the publican calls the police and and there's no fighting and and it does quieten down but it puts and the yorkshire post covers it she's maureen's very good at getting publicity so it it puts this pub in the press as the venue for a, a desegregationist, you know, political action, and it is successful. But but you know that's a, that's early sixties. So the UCA had a platform, an anti-racist platform, as well as organising dances and you know doing things just internally in the community. But by the end of the sixties, early seventies, they're organising a supplementary school because they're so fed up with the lack of progress that kids are making in in schools you know so it's a very progressive community-based organization would, would it be right to think of it as part of a broader sort of black power movement in the uk yeah that's a good that is a very good question and i did ask arthur about this and i record what he says and in fact it's surprising how difficult it is to dig up the the detailed history of black power in Britain. There are various books, the, the book about Darkus Howe and it's a book about John LaRose and there are one or two books about key figures. But the general history is best, I, I mean, absolutely, it's just a tragedy this hasn't been published as a book. A woman called Rosie Wilde, Dr. Rosie Wilde at Sheffield University History Department wrote a PhD on black power in Britain. It's an absolute goldmine of... Uh, oral history and 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 the bits of published history about the emergence of of black power, largely in London, and Leeds doesn't actually appear in this book, and the reason is that although Arthur and his associates are attending uh, black power gatherings, national black power gatherings, both sometimes in London and in Manchester, Birmingham and so on. They're going to those meetings. But it seems that they didn't formally sort of sign up as black power. Arthur tells a funny story about wearing his beret and he's growing his afro and he wears his beret and his black power badges and he goes to church and they all shun him and he leaves the church for a while. You know, so he he is known to be, he has a funny story about the founding of Carnival when he says that his friends are told, that if they if 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 they're seen speaking to him in the street, their wives will disown them. You know because you know he's known to be this black power militant, and he's going to bring a lot of trouble down on black people's heads. So there's quite a conservative element within the community which he is standing out against in a visibly black power kind of way. But it seems from Rosie Wilde's uh, research that and he, and he 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 does say that they. You know, they would attend the meetings, but they didn't they didn't form a specifically black power group. There's a separate group called the Afro West Indian Brotherhood, which is formed, which contains a lot of Jamaican people in it, which which has a slightly more explicitly black power 
um, rhetoric, but is far less popular in the community, partly because there are fewer Jamaicans and partly because it's more explicitly black power. So the UCA is sort of, is kind of tangential to, to black power. But Arthur, you know, but Arthur would stand up for it. And later on, when Race Today, the Race Today collective under Darkus Howe get more established, they have links in Chapeltown, but again, not to the UCA. They have links more to people who, to women, actually, who were once in the Brotherhood. Uh, the Brotherhood, of course, is a stupid sexist kind of title for a mixed, you know, there's, there's men and women. But I, I suppose it's the kind of socialist idea. Socialism is equally um, defective when it comes to these gender politics, isn't it? So the Brotherhood was a mixed organisation. I suppose that brings us on to how uh, socialists at the time in in Leeds related to these kind of organisations. I, I wonder if like looking at a provincial example like Leeds of, of how local socialists and anarchists, especially young people like yourselves who had been to an extent formed by inspiration from the civil rights movement. I know you know you talked to me before about um, the influence of people like James Baldwin, anti-apartheid on your own political development. And I'm sure that's like a broader generational sort of story. Now you've got like these um, organizations developing and growing in the cities where you're living that are espousing this kind of politics. Was there some attempt to relate to these groups on an organizational level? How did that actually play out in practice? Yeah, so this is, there's kind of two elements to this. One is the failure of the predominantly white left to understand black autonomy. That resulted in the, particularly the Trotskyists, you know, just trying to recruit black people to their organizations. That went down like a lead balloon, largely. And it's very, I don't know if you look at this, but um, the international socialists who, who, under Tony Cliff once did actually engage in discussions with CLR James, who's obviously the, you know, the best proponent of, of black autonomy uh, as a sort of philosophy and a, as a, a Marxist type of philosophy. So the international socialists did, Tony Cliff did have meetings with CLR James and, and there was an awful, they both subscribed to the view of state capitalism, Russia as being a state capitalist, uh, or sorry, the Soviet Union as being a state capitalist formation. Um, so there were there were quite a lot of things uh, in common between the international socialists and and the Jamesians. Those relationships broke down, but nevertheless, the IS, who I totally rejected because I at that point was an anarchist and could see their manifold defects. But now I think back on it, they were much closer to a viable politics than probably I acknowledged at the time. Um, but they did recruit quite good numbers of black people. I mean, partly because the IS were much, at that point, were much, you know, they liked a good party. They were much more libertarian in their sort of ethos. They weren't actually formally aligned as Trotskyists at that point. They'd been kicked out by by the Fourth International, you know, all, all those sorts of things. So they were a much more attractive outfit for certainly black intellectuals, black people who'd been through got into university in that period which weren't huge numbers but but of course they were all they all had to leave by the late mid to late 70s when as, as the is tightened up and and as their contempt or their inability to understand the emergence of black power and particularly in the race today emanation of the jamesian tendency within black power 
almost all of them disembarked from the IS ship. And that was symptomatic of a, of a basic problem in the predominantly white left, which was that it wasn't able to understand that the most progress would be made if black people organized with themselves, for themselves, hopefully on a socialist platform. But one of the reasons why the left was so iffy about all of this was that at the same time as black Marxists emerging, black nationalists were also emerging. And although they weren't as bad as the Trotskyists in particular portrayed them to be, they were more essentialist and they were more nationalist and they were more hostile to any kind of liaison with with socialist or, or anarchist or revolutionary groups. But the second side of that is that there were people like me and actually people in the anarchist group who were totally happy in Leeds, who were, you know, we didn't kind of... So (laughs) this is my introduction to Jamesianism. David Widgery, who's a bit of a figure in the international socialists' history and was the founder of Rock Against Racism or one of the founders of Rock Against Racism, I mean, an all writer for International Times, an altogether great guy. I mean, I just love this guy. He said to me, he sat down at my kitchen table once, he said, Max, the trouble with you is you're a Jamesian. I said, what the fuck's a Jamesian? I, I, and he said, CLR, Jane. I said, well, I've read the Black Jacobins, but I never had any idea that there was such a thing called Jane. Oh, you know fuck all about. I mean, he was a tremendous autodidact and a tremendous sort of didact was <laughs> David Woodry, always telling me off and and of course it made me look up and find out what the Jamesians were and then I found out about the argument with Trotsky etc etc so among among the more libertarian and anarchist people who were people who intuitively understood black autonomy so among the founders of the Leeds feminist movement and at that point a member of the Leeds anarchist group a woman called Louise Lavender told me recently that she and lots of the other anarchists marched down out of the student campus in 1971 to stand outside alongside Arthur and the UCA and other and, and other militants for the trial of the officers who killed David Oluwali so you know there were there were white people in the left in that period who would stand full and tom Steele, who i've just referred to before back in 1964 is occupying you know at some personal risk a pub you know in support of uh, black people's rights so there are lots of people around who 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 see that there's something important going on but the general blindness is illustrated by me saying to my tutor in the sociology department, in nine, a lovely guy who said, you can write your own essay. We did no work at all in the sociology department for the three years that I was an undergraduate. You could just drift through zero work, get a degree, who gives a fuck? But this guy's a lovely guy. The first guy who ever said to me, you can do what you like, just write an essay. I'm interested in, and I said, I want to write an essay on black power. He said, what? black power why would anybody write about this i said well there's something going on in this i've been to speaker's corner i'd heard ob egg booner and roy saw you know i said there's something going on and sociology should be taking an interest and john rex who's a pretty famous sociologist had been in the department but nobody had taken any notice of him either so my tutor lets me write this essay on 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 soul on ice and the elders cleaver and all other kinds of imposters actually but i didn't know it at the time but in general nobody gave a tuppenny damn about 
in the left, in, in, in the university, about the emerging presence of black and Asian people, the, emer the, the, the by then widespread racism. My book, you know, about Arthur catalogues quite a lot of this racism. It's everywhere. It's extraordinary how neglected this was. The Labour Party is trundling along with a couple of Race Relations Act, but, but as Paul Foote's very important book called uh, Race and Immigration in, in British Politics, published in about 1967 or something, he quotes uh, Gateskill as saying to the Labour Party, becoming aware that there's a problem here, and the quote that Paul Foote gives is, Gateskill says, there are no votes for Labour in race. Keep clear of this topic as best as you can. And, you know, Labour's, Labour's manifold, I mean, they did do some good things in terms of supporting bits of legislation, but their manifold failures in this field are exactly why we've got Brexit and why we've got such problems today. So the short answer... <laughs> Sorry about the gobshite. The short answer is that in general, the left is pretty is pretty nonplussed if it's paying any attention, but generally not engaging. And and this is why when people like me pitch into Chapel Town, and I, you know, I'll take some credit of realizing I stopped my PhD after two years. I thought, blimey, I'm not going to have a slightest idea of what's going on here you know, in less than 15 years. And I, I did actually pick it up about 20 years later, by which time I thought I knew a little bit about a, a multicultural area where black people are making the political action. But it did take me a long time to feel reasonably confident. I wouldn't have had this conversation with you guys, you know, uh, back in the day, because I just knew I knew nothing. But it, I mean, that was, I now realize that was an advantage over Trotskyists and, and Communist Party members and, 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 and probably Labour Party people who thought they had this, uh, the answers to these new questions. They're brand new questions. You know, the, the book, The Empire Strikes Back, was absolutely right. You know, these, the empire was striking back in the metropolis, and most white people, including me, didn't have a bloody clue. And the only way we learned was by listening to people like Race Today and, and reading CLR James and, and, and so on. But most of us didn't do it. I think that's a, it's a really great thing to, to say and to be aware of, really, the, the limitations of, of your own position and you know, knowledge of what it is that you're doing and to just say, look, you know, it takes time. You know, you, you you know you need you know it's it's not going to happen overnight. This understanding and coming in with a set idea about it is just you know it, it, it's a recipe for for the kinds of interactions that you're describing there. Kind of thinking about another sort of tendency or cultural sort of movement in the time. What just be interested to hear about. The relationship between black politics and Rastafarianism in Leeds in this sort of era? That's um, a very big question. So here's a bit of name dropping. Stuart Hall in, uh, examined my PhD and he, he was very, very, very kind about it and wrote a very, very kind introduction to the book that came out of the PhD. But the one bit of a disagreement he 
he sort of flagged up and I slightly modified the sentence. I, I reread the sentence where he'd got this, you know, he's a close reader as you'd expect. I, I reread the sentence where he'd got this argument from and rewrote it. But he he said, you look to me as though you're pretty critical of Rasta, Rastafari. And Stuart said, for me, I saw... He, his own reflection on Rastafari, and of course he's a Jamaican, so you know he knows it much better than I do, and he knows it from his childhood in or his growing up in Jamaica. He said, "I see Rastafari as a resistance to colonialism, white domination. Um, you know, I see it as, in other words, I see it as a progressive move, a progressive movement, and it looks to me as though you're downplaying that and." What I sort of rewrote it to make clear was that I, so I was on trial in 1976 with the two most prominent people in the Rastafarian group in, in Leeds. And <laughs> I don't know why I laughed because it was pretty traumatic, actually. The judge said he was looking to give me nine years, nine, nine, nine to 11 years in jail because I was accused of starting, I, I was accused of, incitement to riot, participant in a fray, assault on a police officer, and just generally threatening behavior. And the judge was expecting to give me nine years for this. So I sat on trial with 11 black youths, including these two Rasta guys in 1976, and um, who had, you know, I had been on the streets during the riot, and they probably had had a bit more of an active part in it but we were all most of us were pleading not guilty um so we had six weeks sitting next to each other in the dock and that gave me sufficient credentials to talk to both the, the raster guys afterwards to do a, a couple of interviews with them for some stuff that we were writing for chapel town news after the trial and so i got to know these guys a bit better and one of them actually has just returned from Ethiopia. So he he was he was a Rastafarian who took very seriously the Marcus Garvey view of going back to Africa. The other main guy is just basically became a, a professional criminal. And what I said in the PhD, which I'm writing like you know 15 years after this experience, or I'm completing 15 years after this experience. What I say in the PhD is that there are two sides to Rastafarianism. There's one which is deeply spiritual, and and Bob Marley is the best, you know, best known advocate of. It's deeply spiritual and it's deeply political. It has a very well-refined critique of empire, white domination. It couches it in quasi well in in spiritual and religious terms and that's not everybody's to everybody's taste but you know a, a lot of rastafarianism highly intellectual and highly knowledgeable and and utterly opposed to everything that babylon has imposed upon them what i also point out in the phd is that what what the true rastas would call plastic rastas uh were another bunch of people who were just a fa it was a fashion item and they're not by no means that all of them go into crime. Very few of them went into crime, but a lot of them just drew dreadlocks and to pull girls and and to you know go to reggae concerts. My best example of this is 
during the trial of the Bradford 12, one of the brothers of one of the Bradford 12 uh, defendants in Bradford, uh, the Bradford Asians who were, you know, on trial for actually preparing Molotov cocktails to attack the National Front. One of the brothers of, of one of the guys who's my friend does <laughs> he and the Bradford Asian boys would grow their hair long as lots of Asian guys did in the early 80s would put it into locks and pitch over to Amsterdam and pretend to be Rastafarians because the girls loved Rastafarians <laughs> you know, so they scored mightily impressively by posing as British Rastas in Amsterdam but so that kind of masquerade Rastafari is something I pointed out in, in, in my book, but I amplified in light of Stuart's comments the role of the more political Rastafarianists. So to get to your point, the thing that the thing that sociology misunderstood, and there's a book by Ellis Ellis Kersmore, which I, I rip I hope I rip apart in a few sentences in in the book about Chapeltown, misunderstands Rastafarianism as, as mainly what the Rastas call plastic Rasta and sees it as a sort of proto-criminal organization. The trouble with the left is it doesn't see the political Rastafari at all. And in fact, doesn't even take much interest until Rock Against Racism in reggae and, and all, the, all the progressive uh, ideas that are coming out in British reggae. And that's because of Widgery and people who do understand these things. Uh, Red Saunders and the founders of of Rock Against Racism. You know they're they're the kind of more Jamesian type international socialists who do understand these things. They understand culture. They've read a bit of Stuart Hall. Actually, Stuart Hall hadn't published that stuff by then. But you know they're they're in advance of Stuart Hall's analysis of of, of popular culture. Now those people do see that there's something progressive in Rasta and reggae. But in general, the, in general, the left doesn't. So it's a problem for the left. It's also a problem for black power because black power is aware of the two of the two sides of this, and in general, because black power, whether it's the essentialist black power or the bit that I'm most interested in, which is the kind of Jamesian neo-Marxist black power, that tends to also be pretty skeptical of Rastafari for conventional Marxist reasons. You know, they think they're basically the, the, the true Rastas. They see mainly their religious element rather than their political element. So there's not much, as far as I can see, there's not much overlap between even the, even the most radical elements within Rasta and either black power or the, the white left. That's probably a useful distinction, but it's, uh, I mean, you'd imagine personally, obviously, obviously I wasn't around in the, in the 70s, but you'd imagine that it, there's a bit of a blurred line when you have like massive celebrities like Bob Marley, you have like the growth of British reggae, great groups, Oswald Steel Pulse. There's going to be a bit of a, a blurred line between you know how seriously like kids who grow their, their locks out are, are taking the politics, you know, those uh, spiritual aspects and how much it is for fashion. On that point, though, I just wanted to um, think like one of the ways in which this becomes then a, a politicised issue, for especially for young people, and this was happening right up until when I was at school, 
in the 90s, it was used as a school, like dreadlocks were used as a school uniform issue and like kids would be sent home for having for having dreadlocks. I seem to remember reading about a Rasta Defence Committee set up in Leeds about this particular issue. Johnny Clark. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, that's good research, Danny, if you found that, because <laughs> so that is that is the Revolutionary Communist Party trying to get a handle on this. And um, they have a member who became, is still a good friend of mine, really, a white woman who has a black boyfriend. And so she, she, they live together in Chapel Town and therefore they, you know, they do, because through the black boyfriend, they do get to know regular guys. And Johnny Clark, and we do it, we, we put it up, we, we do this in Chapel Town News as well. We take up Johnny Clark's case because he's expelled from school for wearing dreadlocks. And because Chapel Town News isn't a political group, we, we didn't do much more than publicise it. But the RCP probably would have set up a, a group called Rasta Defence Committee or something like this. Johnny Clark never joined the RCP. Um, I saw him at Carnival a few years ago and he was as handsome as ever and he was as grateful as ever for us, you know, supporting him. But he had had not a political life at all. That you know, that was what you or I would call kind of left opportunism, really. You know, just desperately trying to find a cause that might pull two or three people into a a Trotskyist at that point a Trotskyist group. That, as you know, what what happened to the RCP? It didn't grow legs because. I mean, to track back to what I said before about the missionaries, you know, those those Rastas, the, the genuine Rastas, didn't need white people. You know, they'd had enough of white people and, and they weren't going to join, join white people's causes. You know, we were the problem. We weren't the solution. And all those white revolutionaries who thought that they could, you know, recruit them were so underestimating their intelligence and their and their and their ideology so that you know that went nowhere but i think i think i think johnny Meyer got readmitted into school you know and and but the, you know those kind of politics of representation which you're referring to as you know when you're at school are extremely important i, <laughs> I love liverpool as daddy knows because i went to fucking liverpool college and we got our so look, my hair now, I'm a straight old white man. We, we got the back of our necks uh, measured because you had a rule which said you couldn't get your hair within half an inch of the back of your collar. You know, I mean, you know, we were policed because the Beatles, you know, we all were trying to grow our hair and we could see the Beatles. I mean, I now look at the Beatles. They didn't even have long hair either. But, you know, we saw them. We wanted to grow our hair long. And of course, you had a culture war, as they're now called, over the length of your hair. There's, I've, there's a, a book, I don't know if you've seen, Max, come out in recent uh, years by Marcus Collins about the Beatles and British society. It's fascinating about the hair issue. There were actually like unofficial strikes in some um, factories when people were told, you know, when people tried to be sent home for having, for having Beatle cuts. In factories? Yeah, like, yeah, and... and uh, Management, even management. It's not just school teachers. And not just men as well. Like women with beetle cuts, you know, being told they couldn't have uh, you know, for beetle hair. 
to be honestly all those culture wars you know which we're so supposed to be so engaged with now they've been going on ever since alvis haven't they really i learned to slouch you know i really wish i hadn't adopted a slouch you know i wish i'd stood up straight because my back is not great but i adopted a slouch because james dean slouched and my parents hated it it's it's i think um what's he called um bourdieu calls it hexis you know where you you take your culture into your into your body so rasters for instance there's a great movie called rockers which i recommend everywhere and they say i'm a stepping razor and that rasters would walk with these huge strides with huge straight backs and massive confidence you know the hexis was was we are going to fuck you up sorry this is a family show isn't it i shouldn't say that <laughs> the rasters were saying we you know we are taking you on and we're going to show you as we walk the streets and when crack cocaine arrives in the early 90s in chapel town those same you know that same generation the 16 17 year olds 18 19 20 year olds are walking with a with a bent head they you know they've they've lost their stepping razor and it's represent you know it's the politics of representation which you know as stuart hall and people will tell you is extremely important it's not the full politics it's not the full monty that you and i might advocate but it 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 clearly is a, a progressive step and and but it's not to be co-opted you know people have got to find their own way into things that are going to train change the structures of society and of course a lot of those guys did you know like a bunch of uh, you know you now bunch into people who were once in his but Taria in the 80s you know which is a pretty pretty malevolent islamic fundamentalist intellectual organization uh, but they've grown out of it you know they've 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 changed their minds they didn't join al-qaeda they didn't join isis and so on and so forth they changed their minds so a lot of these things are platforms they can go in the wrong direction or they can go in a in a direction that your your i would think is is ultimately more aimed at the kind of underlying structures of of patriarchal white capitalism we've got a final question which i think would be a nice one to end on so yeah just thinking about broader lessons to draw from arthur's activity and really thinking about that that combination of activism culture and community and bringing those things together just some final thoughts on that would be great arthur would say and i try not to give him too many words to this effect because i want the book to be a an inspiration to people but arthur would say he's very disappointed in the depletion of militancy in as as he would as he would call it the african diaspora you know the african caribbean community not just in leeds but but nationally he, you know he was both in, an inspirer of and inspired by black power and in leeds particularly what carnival represented which he always saw as a kind of an as as a cultural emanation of the emancipatory influence impulse that's at the heart of enslaved african peoples um and 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 post slavery so for arthur black power and culture and particularly the carnival culture are two sides of the same coin and carnival you know has gone from strength to strength he would be slightly worried that it, it isn't 
uh, as as it hasn't got quite so much of a radical element within it as it used to have. Although people like me and others do keep promoting a kind of radical element within a critical element within Carnival, but I, I think he I think he's he's a bit disappointed really that 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 his type of politics and culture haven't really got a massive presence in Leeds any longer. On the other hand, and I do say this sort of thing to him, and he, he kind of goes along with it. On the other hand, we have got, got a Caribbean and African presence in Leeds, which is still extremely impressive. So there are lots more people in prominent positions within the council, within businesses, within uh, particularly within the arts, than there ever was in Arthur's day. And a, an awful lot of them, as soon as you scratch the surface, will subscribe to very similar politics to Arthur's. The difficulty is, and I think that white people share this difficulty to in exactly to exactly the same degree white leftists or white anarchists and white socialists share this difficulty to exactly the same degree what is very hard to spot is a viable organizational form for those kinds of politics it's very hard to you know and i spend a lot i'm writing a book simultaneously with this one when i finished the arthur one but i'm just finishing the book about big flame which was the organization i was in and you know my last chapter in that which is trying to apply big flames politics which include big flame was good on these sorts of issues to do with black autonomy and women's autonomy and so on and we were i still think you know, on the right side of history on, on these sorts of issues. But it's still extremely hard to see how you give this organizational form in the 21st century with this, you know, what actually is for us in Britain pretty much an unremitting 40 years of neoliberal economy and pretty much Thatcherite politics and it's very interesting watching this blair brown uh, documentary series that's on at the moment and you see you know for all brown's efforts blair did pretty much continue with thatcher's legacy so the white left the bro broadly thought of is in deep shit the black left is equally in deep shit the white left finds it very difficult to know where to place itself i'm talking about the non-labor left um and 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 the black non-labor left also finds itself in deep dilemmas about how to form organizations that will have any kind of real purchase i mean you know just to speculate wildly my sense is that the basic problem for us all is that we haven't grasped how to how to integrate cultural politics with the other kinds of politics, the more kind of economic and uh, legislative kinds of politics? We haven't we haven't been able to integrate them. And my own learning, really, from James and from you know watching people like Arthur France at close quarters, and actually I think Stuart Hall's 
thinking was going in this direction as well, is, is that somehow you need to really properly integrate culture and politics. I, my, my last pitch on this is that you need a form of materialist philosophy, which is deeply sensuous. And I'll leave that because you can, if you look up sensuous materialism, apparently you find me and some geezer in the Bronx. <laughs> so we both come up with the same term at the same time. But, it, but it's another way of saying, I think you need, to, you need to find a way for the left needs to find a way of integrating emotional life into its political life. Thanks for listening. As ever, you can keep in touch with the podcast via email, abcwithdannyandjim at gmail.com, and Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at abcdannyandjim. You can subscribe to our newsletter at abcwithdannyandjim.substack.com. The podcast music is Stealing Orchestra and Rafael Denusio, Gente de Mina Terra. The podcast logo is an adapted version of the Left Book Club logo. And the image in this episode is a photograph of the early pioneers of Leeds Carnival with Arthur France in the centre. Love and solidarity. Until next time.